Welcome to the Table Dallas podcast. At the Table Dallas, we create a sacred space to worship, connecting our stories with the story of God as revealed in scriptures. We invite you now to listen to this week's discussion. All right, welcome everyone to the Table Dallas on this beautiful, you ready for it, March Sunday. Boy, time is marching on. See what I did there? Uh-huh. Uh, almost spring break time, um, and we are continuing on in our focus this year during the early part of this year-long thread series that we're doing on developing a more robust understanding of meaning, because we've recognized over the last months and years together that there are um, literary genres in the scriptures that affect how we approach those texts, okay? About one-third of scripture is narrative, about one-third of it is poetry, and then somebody asked me the actual terminology. So if you want to know the third terminology, it's called prose discourse, P-R-O-S-E, and then discourse, D-I-S-C-O-U-R-S-E. That's predominantly in the First Testament, the law, all the writings of the law in Exodus and Numbers, for instance, some, and then also all of the epistles that are written by Paul and Peter and those in the Second Testament. So one, roughly one-third narrative, one-third poetry, one-third prose discourse. But for most of us, our default concept of meaning of a text is likely to be something about finding what? What have we been talking about? Finding what? Finding meaning, but usually we find that meaning through a point. Like we're looking to distill it down to a point. You might call it a main idea. You might call it a central concept. But most of the time we just say, hey, what's the point, right? Um, Yeah, that came out kind of funny. Even Phil (laughs) laughed at that one. Um, So what we've been engaged in these last few weeks is an attempt to understand the Bible better. After all, who doesn't want to understand the Bible better, right? That's our task. That's what we're trying to do. But um, that means we have to do some hard work, um, which we've been doing um, toward reorienting ourselves toward this book and recognizing our approach. So our first reorientation was to recognize that sometimes meaning and understanding are found outside of a point. We worked on that for quite a little bit, like meaning as emotion and understanding as feeling. So sometimes the experiencing, the feelings that a text sets out to evoke is part of how we make meaning of it and understand it. Um, Sometimes what the text is inviting us to feel is the meaning, all right? We're meant to feel something. Meaning as emotion, understanding as feeling. We also looked at meaning as defamiliarization with understanding as re-seeing. In other words, sometimes we have to take the familiar and what seems normal, what we think we understand, and have it joggled a little bit in our brain so that we can re-see and reshape our understanding. Otherwise, the temptation is we're going to take God and we're going to try to fit him where? Where? Inside the box. And who creates the box? We do. Yeah, God doesn't create the box. We do. So we try to fit it in there. So sometimes it's just defamil- Oh, wait, that's not how I thought God would act. And then we have to learn to re-see. And then we also talked about meaning as association. Making peace, understanding sometimes, is making peace with the fact that there are connections, but 
when we do see the connections, they don't always resolve nicely into a nice, neat bow. And for those of us who have been taught to read for a point, when the point, when we read and we summarize to a point and we realize that that point from the text we read is different from a different point that we read and they are in, in what? Yeah, when they're in conflict with each other, then we're, we're, we're stumped. We're like, what do we do? I thought God was this, and suddenly we think God is this. I thought human nature was this, and then we discover it's this, all right? So today, today and also next week, because I want to give us a little bit of practice doing this, our next point of reorientation in order to better understand the Bible, and here it is. Get ready to write it down. You set? Ready. All right. To stop studying the Bible. Stop. H card. Yes, I said. Now, before you throw out the H card, I was being intentionally provocative. I'm being like Jesus. <laughs> Ding! Intentionally provocative in that statement, okay? Probably a more honest, less provocative way of saying that is to say, we should stop only studying the Bible when we think about studying as I've got to get to a point. I've got to distill down this text to a point. One of my favorite Swiss theologians, a man by the name of Karl Barth, when I was growing up, we were told, oh, don't read Barth. He's a liberal. <laughs> liberal was the term we could throw on anybody that we didn't, we didn't think that was, you know, I don't know, evangelical or whatever. But listen to what he said. He said, we don't read the Bible to find out how to get God into our lives or get him to participate in our lives, which, by the way, is how I was taught, right? He says, no, we open up the books of Scripture and find that page after page, it takes us off guard, surprises us, and draws us into its reality. Hear that? Draws us into its reality and pulls us into participation with God, here's the key, on his terms. To me, that's beautiful. Moving from studying to reading. So here's how I want to begin our time together before we put some of this into practice. Okay, from your perspective, what's the difference between studying and reading? I'm going to assume that we've done both in our lives, right? We read. Does anybody here read for enjoyment? A few, right? So we understand that. And we've all had to study for school, for work, examinations, right? What's the difference between studying and reading? Let's bring out some points. You use the word enjoyment. Ah, I, I said, oh, I showed my bias. Yeah. <laughs> studying, studying often is for, to accomplish an objective of either knowing material, Okay. You study to impress people? Is that what you said? Okay. Hold on, hold on. I was going to agree with Mike. There's a purpose for studying, whereas reading is just something you do. Okay. Yeah, I mean, like with the goal. Yeah. But, I mean, with reading, you can read it for enjoyment, but still learn something. Sure. Sure. And that's probably where you're trying to push. I don't have an agenda, Dan. 
I mean, and, and no one's saying that these things are completely like, you know, it's one or the other. They're not, they're not polar opposites that you can't somehow. But keep in mind, my point here is simply to say that when we engage with scripture, we've been taught to study, which is about zeroing it down to a point so that we could take a test on the material. It's essentially, in our mind, we're like, I can't just read it. I mean, think about it, that statement. I can't just read the Bible for enjoyment. I mean, don't you get a little willies when you hear that? Because it's not the what we've been taught to do, right? At all, right? So we've been taught to extract things from text, like, oh, this might be on the test. I was just talking to Brian. They were doing a pre-star test, right? Mock star. star test. And their question to him was, is this going to be on the test? Something like that, right? Are we going to be, oh, is this going to be a grade? Is this going to be a grade? And I remember when I was teaching full-time, that was the number, kids would come up, uh, Mr. Wallstead, is this going to be on the test? What do you think? <laughs> it's very likely this will be on the test. Otherwise, I wouldn't be spending all this time doing it. So we naturally come by that. All right? So when I sit here and tell you that if we want to learn how to better understand Scripture and have the impact that I think it's designed to have on us, sometimes... We have to approach the scripture from something other than a study model. Anybody going to push back on me on that? You're free to. You'll lose, but no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> just kidding. I'm just kidding. See, when we study, here's my point. When we study the Bible, and that's, by the way, something we should do. <laughs> something we should do on a regular basis, Right? But we make it the object of our attention. I'm going to study this text, okay? And so we tend to, when we do that, subject it to whatever agenda or goal we have. I want to read it because I want to find out this, or I want to read it because they need an answer to that. And so we put, we put ourselves above the text, which is normal in studying, right? And the challenge with that is, it could be intellectually profitable, it could be spiritually beneficial, but remember, typically when we're doing that, we are setting the terms. Like, I'm reading it, studying it, because I need to get this out of it. I need to understand this better. I need an answer to this. Are we, are we following me here? You can shake your head. Yeah? Okay, good. So, when we read, not only do we have to read, we have to read the Bible, something other than our terms. What do I mean by reading the Bible on our terms? Pretty, mean, pretty simply, I mean, we tend to read to extract instead of immersing ourselves. So even if we're just reading, we say, I'm going to read, we fight to, okay, what am I going to extract out of this story, this narrative, this piece of text? Um, isolate it. We sometimes strange, uh, uh, we, we, um, we, we strand it. We put it into a different environment. We put it into our environment. Or we try to extract something out from it. Like, for instance, the story of, of God and Noah. Um, how do we get an important theological truth out of God's decision to wipe out everyone on the face of the earth except Noah? Like, if you're studying and you want to pull out a principle of that one, that's going to be a challenging one to, to deal with, right? But when we take the time to immerse ourselves in the story and let it kind of roll over us maybe by the time we're done we'll come up with something as we go back and study but 
We extract instead of immerse. Um, and there's no reason to have to, every single time we open up the Bible, look to extract the truth. I just freed you up. You are allowed to lead, read the Bible just for enjoyment, or as we sometimes call it, for whim. We like to read it. It's a literary masterpiece. It's okay to read it without trying to extract a point. Am I making my point? Got it. All right. Second thing we do sometimes is we extract instead of immerse and we summarize and distill instead of just slowing down. Right. When we summarize and we distill, it's screaming, hurry up, hurry up. I got to get to the point. I got to get rid of all the extraneous stuff in the story that doesn't need to be there. I just want to quickly go through and and identify what, here's the key, what we deem to be essential in the story. Make sense? Like we're like, oh, that's an extraneous detail. We found out last week that where things take place in Beersheba is not an extraneous detail. Now, we might have thought that, but when we step back and we put proper... <laughs> proper interpretive mode in place, we realize, no, that's a key element of the story, all right? So we need to slow down and immerse ourselves in the story. And finally, we abstract, abstract, instead of being enchanted. So when we extract or we summarize and we distill, what we do is we take something that's particular to the situation, in that narrative, in that piece, and we make it general and applicable to every situation, particularly ours. So that whole, some of you may remember that whole movement, uh, what was it called, the uh, expand my border thing? The, pra the prayer of Jabez. Anybody old enough to remember that prayer of Jabez thing? It wasn't that long ago, I was pastor here when it was happening. But that was a whole thing where every day you would pray the prayer of Jabez, which was expand my borders and give me more flocks and all of that. But typically what that means is we've taken a very specific situation to Jabez and his family, and we've made it very general to ours and our situation. All right. Um, and we want to take something concre concrete out of something that's kind of abstract. That's part of the story. All right. So I want us to move beyond some of those things. Um, and attempt to do something different, which is to learn to read the Bible, read the Bible on its terms, the terms of itself. In other words, in classic theology, we call it putting ourselves under the text. So when I say over the text and under the text, what am I saying? Somebody explain it. Over the text and under the text. Exactly. That's reading it on your terms, right? Yes, exactly. I have this predetermined idea, and I'm going to proof text it. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I'm going to proof text it. I believe this. I know this is true. Here's the Bible to prove it. 
And then when somebody gives you a, a text also from scripture that might counterman that position, you're like, uh, okay, yeah, what else? Over and under the text, anybody? Are we clear? We understand what it is? When I think of under the text, I kind of envision being in water mm-hmm. and being just completely inundated with something. Yeah. The, that's, that's a very Hebraic way of thinking about the scriptures where you're, you're floating and the water is kind of, of, you know, flowing past you, letting the story, like being part of the slow movement and just, you know, just literally being suspended and letting it flow over you is a beautiful way of thinking about it, right? And we've done studies where they say, imagine yourself sitting there. Right. In the story. Exactly. Exactly. So when we, when we learn to read the Bible on its terms, instead of trying to identify the main idea in a story, we're learning to embrace the labyrinth of relationships, of characters, of conflicts, and sometimes, you ready? The lack of closure in a story. Like, we're in the West, we're terrible about this, right? Even this morning, we were, we were talking about, uh, in the kids, Waffle Church, it's not what it's called, family table, but affectionately, we call it Waffle Church, because I've been making waffles for 10 years. I've got them down, do you think, guys? Have I got waffles down? Okay, good. But we're working our way through the Gospel of Mark. And Mark has this great way of saying, you know, immediately, immediately, or, or right away. And it's kind of characteristic of his writing. But then, very frustratingly, at the end of Mark's Gospel, it says, and Jesus died on the cross and his disciples went away. Boom, the end. And we so dislike that, that scribes had to go back and write an ending and insert it like 400 years later, just because uh, you can't leave it unresolved, all right? Um, and we hate that about movies too, don't we? And novels. You get to the end and you're like, yeah, you're like, really? You're going to leave me here? Um, so I think what I'm trying to encourage us, and I know this is going to sound like heresy, you have your card put away, Phil? You didn't bring your card today? Good. I think we need to learn to read the Bible oftentimes, depending on the genre that we're in, obviously. Um, like we would read a plot-driven mystery story or a poetic piece, especially when we're dealing with narratives. Now, I'm not talking about prose now. I'm talking about narratives like we're engaged in right now. And resist the temptation to philosophize, to theologize, and simply enjoy the story. So we have to learn to do what probably all of you cringed in high school and college and maybe grad school and beyond, um, what we call literary analysis. That sounds like a dirty term, but it's not. Um, In our Reformed tradition, it is a big part of how we've been taught to study the scriptures. So the problem is I'm trying to get us to move from studying to reading. And so when you read and you're doing literary analysis, you're looking for things like, tell me about the characters. What's the setting like? Is there a conflict? What's the conflict over? How do the people respond to conflict? All the things that we do naturally in our brain when we're reading for pleasure that we somehow turn off when, we're, when we open the Bible because we're studying. 
you recognize that you do it every time you open up a book, every time you watch a film, you're doing literary analysis. You're like, oh, that character. So that's what we're going to do this morning. We got time. And then we're going to do it again next. We're going to look. So you get a little bit of practice on not studying, but just reading and giving you some ideas about how to do literary analysis. So you're asking questions of the theme, of the setting, of their characters, their relationships, their motivation, and maybe any conflict. And that's where we'll be. All right. So we're in First Samuel chapter 4. And we're going to read 12 verses of a narrative. And then we're going to read a, the continuing thread story to that from 1 Samuel chapter 5. But we're going to do them individually. But I want us to focus not on what's the point, how do, what do I find out and discover about God in this. That's not what we're after, okay? We're after enjoying and reading the story and then doing some natural literary analysis. Are we clear? Chris, is this clear? She's giving me yes, because I threw this past her so early on. All right, so somebody read 1 Samuel chapter 4, 1 through 12. And again, we're not listening for a point. We're listening to let the story flow over us. And then I'll ask some questions to see if we can't see how this is affecting us, okay? One through, 10. One through 12, where he dies. Phineas and Hophni as Phineas and died. And Samuel's word went out to all Israel. In those days, the Philistines gathered for war against Israel, so Israel went out to engage the Philistines in war. Israel camped at Ebenezer, while the Philistines camped at Ava. The Philistines readied themselves to fight Israel. When the battle was joined, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, When the chest containing the Lord's covenant entered the camp, all Israel let out such a loud shout that the ground shook. Whoop, whoop, whoop. <laughs> when the Philistines heard the sound of that shout, they asked, what is that loud shouting in the Hebrew camp about? When they learned that the Lord's chest had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid and said, a God has come into <coughs> our camp. We're doomed, they said, because nothing like this has ever happened. This is the word of the Lord. 
All right, so I'm gonna, I'll just jump to the chase. So if you're studying it, typically you come up with some kind of a conclusion that says God is not a vending machine that you could just kind of pull out and use him and have him be your genie in a bottle and do whatever it is that you want him to do. Fair enough? Because they, they think, right, in the story, that's what they think is happening, right? Oh, I know what our problem was. We didn't have God in the box. We didn't have the Ark of Covenant with us. So all we have to do is go get the Ark of Covenant. If we go and do the same thing with the Ark of Covenant, we're going to be victorious. And they weren't. All right. But now I want us not to read like that. I want us to go back and say, all right, this is a beautifully written story. And when we, especially when we pair it with what we'll see here in just a few minutes. There are characters here, there's plot, there's conflict. And so let's just think about that for a moment. Let's think about the setting. All right, think about the setting. Take a look at that for a moment. How does the setting of the story, where it's taking place, the people involved in it, how does that affect the, the sense of how you're, how you're getting ready to read it? In other words, when you first hear, you've got Philistines, you've got the Israelites, what is the setting in your mind? What do you visualize? Because if you're reading, this is what you're doing. Desert terrain. So you're imagining in a desert, okay? Which is an interesting thought. Because early on when they take over the land, it's supposed to be flowing with milk and honey. And yet in our mind, we imagine desert. Okay, interesting. I think it's a battlefield. So... Yeah, kind of Lord of the Rings-ish. you got the camp over here, the camp over here. Okay, good. What else? What else do you see about the setting? Are there any symbols present, developed in the story? What are some of the symbols we see in the story? Well, to me, the Philistine leaders stood up and said, what are you afraid of? Be men reminds me of Braveheart. Okay. okay. But again, you've pointed, you've made the point that a literary piece like Braveheart, which we consider literary, not, I wouldn't say necessarily brilliance, but beauty, something that survived generations, right? And so we have a Bible with a story that invokes the same kinds of feelings. What else? There's some symbols there. We've hit on one. This isn't as hard as you think it is. What are some of the symbols we see there? You've got the ark. What does the ark symbolize? Yeah, what's in the ark? Ten commandments. What else is in there? Yeah, what else is in there? We got manna. All of this symbolizing the presence of God. What else? The provision of God. The protection. Of, it's not that hard. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. God is my. Yeah. My, my, the God of my, my rock God, who is my helper, who's there. Yeah. What else? What about, okay, let's make it, let's move it to the characters, for instance. Um, what are the biggest fears of these characters, do you think? We got a couple sets of characters, right? What characters do we have? So you got the Philistines, you got the Israelites, you got that one commander, so you've got some of that, all right? What else? 
You got Hophni and Phineas, who are the high priests, the co-high priests, okay? So what are their biggest fears? Philistines are afraid of becoming slaves like they've been slaves. <laughs> yeah, it's like, uh-oh. If they bring the God who showed up in Egypt, that's, by the way, 400 years ago. If they show up, well, they moved to Egypt 400 years ago. They've been out of Egypt now for some time. But that, that we might end up just like the Egyptians. So the story of the freedom of Israel out of Egypt has made its rounds. What else? Greatest fears. Losing the ark. Yes. Yeah, so, uh, okay. That's fine. Yeah, that they're afraid they're going to lose the ark. Okay. Do, where do you see that? So I'm just curious. How do you see that in the story? Well, like later on, uh, when the messenger after the battle and they lost the ark ran to Eli, uh, you know, he was out by the road because he was worried about the, the ark. Gotcha. And, you know, people were obviously worried. Yeah, it was not a good idea necessarily. Yeah, we lost God. <laughs> we left God in the in the grocery store. What other fears? Come on, we know how to do this. It kind of seems like at the beginning um, that they're afraid that God isn't with them. Like, because they're like, why did the Lord defeat us today before the Philistines? Like, so they're like, okay, go get this chest. I feel like they're afraid that God's not with them. Yeah. It was never the Philistines defeated them. God defeated them. Right. And so they had certain, these characters had certain expectations. Well, when they brought the ark into the camp, the ground shook, and they said, we've never seen this but but you see isn't this the beauty of just approaching the text as a, a a beautifully written story because you have this conflict um in the characters they have fears right the philistines are afraid that the god who freed israel from egypt might show up and their their thought of that is we got no chance right we'll end up as slaves the Israelites have a different fear. Like, we went out to battle. What were they expecting when they went out to battle? They expected to win. Interestingly, there's nothing in the text that said God asked them to do that. They just assumed. Say again. It's like, that's probably why they went and brought the ark to force God to be present. Yeah, the first time they go out without him going, we don't, you know, we can do this on ourselves. Like, we, we can just go out there and, you know. It definitely, I mean, part of this is like, it would have been totally disorienting to them. Like, we went out to battle and they lost, what, the first time was 3,000? 4,000 people. Like, what? So, um, do you think either of the characters, any of these characters, had developed any bad habits? Say what? Yeah, so the, the idea of complacency comes up for whom? The Israelites. The Israelites? Yeah. Okay. Okay. All of that's there. So let's talk a little bit about motivation. Do you think that, let's talk with the characters. Start with Philistines. Is their motivation internal or external? Or yes? Yes. Why? Oh, I don't, because I don't know the answer. No? <laughs> 
that's not an answer. He embraced both hands. When you're in a battle, you want to win. Right. right. Yeah, so what does that motivation re reveal about them? They don't want to be treated the way they treated others. That's one thing. That's, for conquest, sure. that's conquest orientation. Yeah. They must have a pride of being, I mean, they were a huge powerhouse in the whole region for centuries. Mm -hmm. But it definitely reveals that they're not as confident as they might have been. Because they've heard stories, apparently they've heard stories, right? Because, you know, yeah, the one guy has to stand up and go, be men. Yes, you can, you can almost see him doing that, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. How about the motivation of the Israelites? Internal, external, what do we see? Motivation-wise. What's motivating the Israelites here? Uh, could be payback. Could be payback, okay. I mean, they do have a promise that they get this one. Right. <coughs> good. For good or for bad. What else is motivating them? Maybe it helps to talk about their relationships. How do these people know each other? Say what? It's one big family. Yeah, you got you basically have two family units who've grown up and are they friends? Are they ever friends? No. Rarely, if ever, are they on the same side? I can't automatically think of a situation in Scripture where they're on the same side. That doesn't mean that they don't, at some obscure point, get together to do something. But as far as I know, they are always arch enemies. What else? How do they, what do they feel about each other? Yeah. Based on what? Hatred based on what? Okay, but what's motivating this hatred? Probably territory. There's, there's territory for sure. The Israel's, Israelites were their slaves, it seems like. Yeah. Yeah, we have bloodline battles. Yeah. It looks like Philistines are defending their, their land and the Israelites are invading them, so... So they see them as invaders or you know taking something that doesn't belong to them, okay? Yeah. Other thoughts about the story that that you pick out. This is part of literary analysis. If you're the Israelites, what are you thinking? At this part of the story. Yeah, and that's an important historical contextual piece, right? We've got my God is stronger than your God. The battle is between gods, those Elohim, and, and the fear from them as well. The first time they went out, there's nothing about fear. On either side, did you notice that? No one's afraid. 
They just say, we're going out to battle. After the battle's done, how has that changed? After the first battle is done, how has that changed? The Israelites are down 4,000 men. They're like, where's God at? They're, they're, you got to argue, they're questioning everything about themselves and their God. And the Philistines are doing what? They're happy. They're, they're like, we're on the right side here. Righteousness is on our side. Our God is more powerful, you see. And then suddenly, the tables turn. If you're the Philistines, it says, you heard the rumbling. We know what that's like, right? You're someplace and you hear some big commotion somewhere. What's the natural response? I want to know what's happening, right? And they immediately, somehow, I don't know if they have spies... Yeah, something in there, and they find out, oh, now what's happening? Now let's think about, how are the, how are the Israelites now feeling? Confident. Now they're confident. They're like, I know what we did wrong. We didn't have God with us. We didn't have God with us. Now we have God with us. We're going to be victorious. We know the Philistines' attitude has totally changed. Now they're what, Luther? Terrified, because they've heard the stories, right? And the expectation, if you're reading the story, if you're flipping the pages, like you're reading a novel, what is your expectation now? What's going to happen? Every time. Good storytelling does that. You're like, yep. They have, I mean, because we know the background. Oh, man, God is more powerful than them. Yet they go out, what happens? Bigger loss. Now what are you feeling? Now what are you feeling if you're A, the Philistines? Start there. How are you feeling if you're the Philistines? You are invincible. Not only did you destroy them, you stole the God that was supposed yeah. to conquer you. <laughs> you stole their God. You took them away. Absolutely. And till the most powerful happened to be corrupt, but... That's another part of the story. So you could argue that that actually has a huge impact on the story. They weren't doing what they were supposed to be doing. They weren't instructing the people in the proper use of the ark, what God wanted. All of that is built into the story, right? But when we step down and we stop studying it for a point, we have made no points here, right? We've just read and done what you naturally do in your head when you read a story. I've just made you say it outside, say it out loud. And this is okay. It's okay if you were done and you read the story and this is all you did. That's okay. That's what it's meant to do. Because this story will work on you. It will continue. You'll see things as you think about it. You'll be like, oh, I've seen this before. Now what I want to do is, in the remaining minutes, I want you to jump forward just a few verses to chapter 5. This is the threaded piece with the stones involved here. So you could say this is both sticks and stones because the ark is made up of acacia wood covered in gold. So you have a stick imagery. Now we're going to see the stone imagery here in 5, 1 to 11. And I want you to, we're going to do the same thing, but mostly I want you to just kind of pay attention to the contrasts, the similarities, the relationships, the motivation changes, how the conflict changes. In 5, 1 to 11. 
Philistines took God's chest, they brought it from Ebenezer to Ashadod, and the Philistine took God's chest and brought it into Dagon's temple and set it next to Dagon. But the, when the citizens of Ashdod got up early the next morning, there was Dagon, fallen face down on the ground before the Lord's chest. So they took Dagon and set him back up where he belonged. But then they got up the early next morning where there was Dagon was again, fallen face down on the ground before the Lord's chest. And this time Dagon's head, along with both hands, were cut off and lying on the doorstep. Only Dagon's body was left intact. So that's why to this day Dagon's priests or anyone else who enters his temple in Ashdod don't step on the threshold. The Lord's hand was heavy on the people of Ashdod, and the, God terrified them and struck them in Ashdod with its and its surroundings with tumors. When Ashdod's inhabitants saw what was happening, they said, the chest of Israel's God must not stay here with us, because his hand is hard against us and against our God, Dagon. So they summoned all the Philistine rulers to the, a meeting and asked, What should we do with the chest of Israel's God? The people of God <coughs> said, Let the chest of Israel's God be moved to us. So they moved the chest of Israel's <coughs> God to Gath. But once again, they moved, but once they moved it, the Lord's hand came against the city, causing a huge panic. God struck the city's inhabitants, both young and old, and tumors broke out on them. Then they sent the chest to Ekron. As soon as God's chest entered Ekron, the inhabitants cried out, Why have you moved God, the chest of Israel's God to us? In order to kill us and our people? So they summoned all the Philistine rulers to a meeting and said, Send the chest of Israel's God away. Let it go back to its own home so it doesn't kill us and our people. Because there was a deadly panic throughout the whole city. The hand of God was very heavy there. This too is the word of the Lord. So Dagon is a stone idol, okay, that's been put together, carved. Typically, they're carved out, set up. It's part of the worship, the Philistine worship. It's um, uh, a fish. looks like a kind of a fish-looking critter. And I don't know why fish and um, fertility are connected. I don't know why, but that's what is connected here. Okay. Um, there's just a lot of fish eggs. Yeah, that's that's yeah. Every fish has lots of eggs, so there's lots of chances for for fertility and and many along there. Okay, so yeah, so let's do some of the same analysis again. All right, we have same characters plus well, we have one character that's that that carries over, right? That character is or characters are. The Philistines. So the story is connected, right? So they take the ark, they move it back to their center of worship. Now what do we see happening? What's, what are some of the comparisons and contrasts in the story? Because the writers are putting him there as a, a comparison contrast. I mean, it's clearly set up that way when you're reading. And it's interesting that nothing to do with the Israelites. It's literally God choosing in the story, the way the story is written, right? To make sure that the people of, of the Philistines, the people of Philistine, you got it. Know that, eh, what's the message being sent there? Well, God's doing it on his terms, not 
Yeah, you might want to rethink that big battle victory because you should be very afraid, right? That the loss of the army is not a reflection of God's power or authority. You see, and this is all from the symbols. You've got the stone god of Dagon, and you've got God in the Ark of the Covenant in the same room. They kind of close the, the tent, so to speak. Show up the next day, just like Hophni and Phineas would have done if they were in the temple. Here comes Dagon's priests, if you will, and they're like, oh, this is kind of weird. This giant stone, you know, it's like this tall, suddenly is face down. Oh, well, I don't know how that could have happened. Well, no, but I mean, yeah. Well, yeah, they're like, yeah, that shouldn't that shouldn't be able to happen, right? You know, with you just instructing or telling us to read, this story takes the beginning of it. The first thing that hit me when they moved in was roll. <laughs> this ain't gonna go well. And I mean, just because I was reading this yep. before, I was like, I didn't use Dagon. Yep, no, that's exactly my point. Well done. You're catching on. That's it. You get a feeling. What else is happening? Has the conflict changed? The relationship changed? What about motivations? All of that. What's changed? Anything? Now the conflict is between two gods. Uh-huh. And what else? Originally, you had the first part, the god Dagon against Yahweh. But then later on, there's another conflict. The hot potato. So you got the leaders of the Philistines who are playing hot potato going, well, let's put them over here. Let's put them over here. And every time they go somewhere... It gets worse, but what tumors on people, innocent people? Are they innocent? But that's the questions that it makes you ask. Like, so the parallel is, I mean, similar to what happened to the Israelites when they treated God incorrectly. Similar thing is happening to the Philistines, different way. But they're also not recognizing who Yahweh is, right? What else? Conflicts, habits. Are there any memories driving their actions? These are questions that you would ask. Well, we've already referenced Egypt and what happened in Egypt. So the fact that they're seeing tumors and other things probably brings back the story of these plagues and what's coming next. You see? When you read it, you're like, oh, yeah. If you're the Philistines, you're like, exactly what we're worried about just happened. And we were victorious. They thought. And, and they didn't have their God to fall back on because now his head is cut off. His hands are cut off because in verse 6, the hand of the Lord was yeah. heavy. Yeah. Yeah, you see the symbolism there? And the fact that he's face down, he's got no head, he's got no hands, the symbology there is obvious. If we're just reading, like, he, we cut off the head of the snake, so to speak. So without a brain, there's no organization without hands. This God is useless. He can't think, he can't act. But everywhere that Yahweh goes, you could say trouble follows. Dagon's name should have been changed to Matt. Matt, because he's. That's no hands on Yeah, he's just Matt. Flat. Gotcha. Well played. Gotcha. Gotcha. 
and curiosity is why in the world the Philistines not bow before this new God? That's I mean, a good question to ask. Why? What would you have done in that situation? I've been like going, you know. Well, in some senses they did, though, right? There are some. They were like, "Why did you bring that here?" But they didn't change. True. And embrace that God. But wouldn't that have invited the wrath of Dagon on them? You know, is it because their regional God and their possibly would still be in control? Would the God of Israel be the first God they've ever met that travels? Is this a new concept? Yeah, historically, this it likely would have been felt really this kind of story would have been unusual because yes, because of the fact that they, you know, that God is now displaced. He shouldn't have any power in their, in their zone. But what's also weird is their God should not have lost in his own territory. It's one thing if, if they had been on the battlefield outside of their territory and they lost, but they brought him back victorious and, you know, dumped him in there. And in every expectation they would have had is their God was superior. And for them to have this situation, they immediately would have had a different feeling. We might go rut row, but for them, it's probably more than that, right? It's also an interesting symbol that Dagon is just this huge, huge, heavy rock. And, and a the stick. ark is meant to travel. Yeah. That's the whole point of the ark, is it goes places. Yeah, it's not stuck and heavy. And that little, and that stick covered in gold, Akasha covered in gold, takes out this mighty rock. Well, it, it shouldn't, uh, for them, it, it's not even, a, it doesn't feel like uh, something you should be fearful of. It was like a trophy for them. Yeah, a trophy. Send it back because it didn't do any good to them when it was there. So we can just as easily send it back there. It's less trouble to us if we send it back to them because obviously it's not working for them. But for us... Yeah, maybe if we send him back where he was, he won't be angry. He doesn't like he doesn't like anything but home cooking. Well, they did, they did send a guilt offering with it. So Say they, again? They did send a gold guilt offering with yeah. it. They're like, back, so they were trying to tease God. Yeah. And they, they weren't afraid because they were sent back to the very people they took it. Yeah, they're, they're not afraid. They defeated them. They're afraid of what that the God that represents. I don't know if they would have understood contained, but that symbol of God, they were afraid of that. They're not afraid of the Israelites. They're afraid of that. So they send it back with guilt offerings. My point in having us do this exercise, and we'll do another one next week with a different story, is simply to do out together, voice the way that we would normally read it if we were reading it like any other piece of literature. Just do you... Do you feel how this is different? And if so, how does it feel different? Do you, does it feel different than when you're studying? And if so, how or why not? Why or why not? Yeah, I, I think this ties into our discussion before about subjecting yourself to the actual power of the story. Um, 
and it opens up a space that's not, you need to get a point out of this because extracting a point from either one of these stories separately and then them together, you can, I mean, I see lots of different ways I can actually look at this, um, but it opens up a spot just to let things hang in tension. Um, that, that I think gives God a lot more power um, because yeah, when you're, when you're subjecting the literature to us understanding it, that automatically implies I can look at this and make and basically control it. I can make sense of it. I make sense of it. There's yeah. That that would be the difference of being above and below the text. When you're seated below the text, we're living in the tension of God's punishing it we could say, like innocent people. Like they weren't part of it. And then you could ask the question, well, are they innocent? They're the Philistines. Did they do something to deserve? I mean, all of these questions are now opened up that we may not have. The text does not give us an answer for. So when we're putting that answer to it, then we're above the text and we're not reading the Bible from its perspective, but we're reading it from our perspective. We need to have this answered, right? Sure does make reading Exodus. I'm in the 20s, chapters 20, 21, 22, 23, when they're doing all the Reading the Bible for whim and enjoyment. I know that sounds almost heretical for the words to come out of my mouth. But I really want to try to encourage you to spend some time this week just reading stories like this. Now, don't go to Paul's epistles and try to do this. Don't go to the, the first and second telling of the law and try to do this. Or, I mean, and you could do it a little bit easier in poetry, but poetry is less about characters and stuff as it is about emotion. We'll use some of the other tools. But when we're reading a narrative and you want to read a narrative, this is, this is how you get out of the bad habit of always reading a study. Make sure I say it one more time. I'm not suggesting this replaces study, that we're not supposed to study. We're not supposed to make application and points and all of that. That's not what I'm saying. But that's not the sole purpose of why we open the books, open the pages of Scripture. Sometimes it's simply just to read, slow down, and let the stories and the power of the story, and in this case, the power of God that's displayed in the story, resonate with us, even if it leaves us a little bit uncomfortable. Because we haven't been able to distill it down to, what am I going to walk away with? Missing the forest for the trees, that kind of thing. Yeah, beautiful. Beautiful. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Table Dallas podcast. We invite you to join the conversation at one of our upcoming tables. To learn more about us, please check out our website at thetabledallas.com. And remember, we're saving a seat for you at the table.